Hebrews chapter 9. And beginning in verse 1. And ladies and gentlemen, this is the word of God. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this, your holy word. Write its truths on our hearts that we would forever be in awe of you and live in the good of it. We ask it in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. In the realm of sport, to enjoy either playing or watching, you must learn the rules. That's just the way it is. In England, where I grew up, we played a lot of soccer. It's called football there. Played a lot of soccer, played a lot of rugby, played a lot of cricket. Here, we play football, baseball, basketball. At the age of 22, I first came to the United States and I saw my first game of basketball. Actually, I saw it as I was playing it. It's hard for you to imagine this, but I'd never seen basketball. I'd heard of it, but never seen it. Nothing was explained to me. It was just uh, we had a night off from meetings. We were traveling and preaching. I was uh, the associate minister of a particular man. And when you've only got one sermon, you have to travel. So we traveled a lot, and uh, we had a night off, and I was asked to go with this uh, church group to play basketball. Nothing was explained. All I knew that there was that there was a line on the court somewhere, 
And uh, if you stood behind that line or got behind the line and shot the ball into the hoop, uh, you scored three points rather than two. That's all I knew. So what did I do? Well, helping my team, wanting to help my team. Every time I got the ball, I shot a three. Doesn't matter where I was. I was Steph Curry before his time. (laughs) At least a legend in my own mind. And that was the point. I missed everything every time. And so it took me about five minutes, maybe six, but not seven, to realize without practice, and a whole lot of practice, I wasn't ever going to score three points. Uh, Better to pass the ball and uh, let's get two points on the board. Now I'm sure Americans watching, if they were watching, would have said, what's wrong with that guy? Uh, Someone might have said, it's okay, he's from England. Um, We should be just happy that he isn't trying to kick the ball into the hoop. So I learned a lot about basketball in those first few minutes. Now, on the other side, when Americans visit England, oh boy, they can watch the game of cricket for many hours and still not have a clue about what's going on. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Maybe you, like me, not seen basketball. Maybe you've never seen cricket. You actually can start a game on a Monday at uh, 9 a.m., go through to 7 p.m. on the Monday, and play Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, one game, and it'd be a draw, and everyone's happy. Five full days, almost a week of your life. You wait two more weeks, and then you have another week of that. It's true. I'm not exaggerating at all. Um, but like basketball, cricket has rules, and in every sport there are rules, and you've got to learn those rules, different rules. Now, when it comes to the realm of religion, there are many false gods, millions of them. Many false gods, only one true God, and this one true God has rules of approach. Israel was the chosen people of God. Deuteronomy 7 verse 6 reads this way, speaking to Israel, God speaking, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. Now we don't understand that. Why didn't God wait for the English to come along? Why didn't he wait for us to come along? No, he had his own sovereign purposes and chose Israel to be his. Amos chapter 3 reads this, O people of Israel, you only have I known among all the families of the earth. There the word known is speaking of a a redemptive knowing. Only you have I had covenant with, redemption for the people of God, Israel. Only you have I known among all the families of the earth. Romans 3 verse 1, Paul asks this question, What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? His answer, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. God gave the people of Israel his instructions, his oracles, his word. And, as I say, to approach God there were rules, many rules, all of which had to be followed. When we come to this concept of the tabernacle, we must remember this, the big picture. This was God's idea. This was initiated by God. This was commanded by God. God did not have a pole and say, now what kind of service would you like? How would you like to approach me? What would you like it to be? And we'll set up things according to that. No, he gave instruction and said, this is the way it shall be or else you die. And we as uh, 
democratic people, people that like to vote on things, say, well, surely he's going to ask if this is okay with me. And he says, uh, sorry, uh, this is my kingdom. It's not a democracy. And uh, I'm king and you're not. And this is the way you approach me or you die. Uh, we would like to say, is there anyone else we can talk to? And the answer is no. There's only one God and this is his way. Now, when we come to our Bibles, the Bible's very narrow-minded if that's our approach. We think, well, I think I should be able to go to God this way and that way, and my kind of religion is not to go to church on a Sunday in uh, our 21st century. I like to just sit out in my yard and see the flowers and see the, the bees buzzing and the little hummingbirds, and that's where I feel close to God. That's where I feel uh, more, more relatable to myself, and, and that's where I feel peace. And God says, well, you may feel peace, but you're under my wrath. You're under my anger, and that's because you're not approaching me my way. And we think, well, surely Jesus, when we get to Jesus, he's going to dispel this one-way kind of thing. And the answer is no. He says things like this. It wasn't the Christians that came up with this. This is Jesus speak. He said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. And we think, well, surely the apostles will just tone this down a little bit. Well, no, they don't. Uh, there's one God and one mediator between God and men the, men, the man Christ Jesus. That's Paul. What about Peter in Acts 4? Salvation is found in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So there's this continual thing going on. One way. Well, that's kind of narrow. Or is it? One of the main objections people have to the Christian faith is exactly that. The Christian proclaims that only in Jesus is salvation found. Let's look about at this idea of narrowness. I like to give a lengthy quote from Dr. R.C. Sproul from his book, Reason to Believe. And it starts with these words, let's suppose, I'd like you in your mind to suppose this, let's suppose that there is a God who is absolute in his holiness and righteousness. Suppose he freely creates mankind and gives each human being the gift of life. Suppose he sets his creatures in an ideal environment with the freedom to enjoy the wonders of the entire creation. Then, let's suppose that God imposes one small restriction upon them and warns them that if they violate that restriction, they will die. Would such a God have the right to impose such a restriction with the penalty of forfeiture of the gift of life of his if his authority was violated? Then let's suppose that for no just cause the ungrateful creatures disobeyed the restriction. Yet suppose that when he discovered their violation, instead of killing them instantly, he redeemed them. Suppose the descendants of the first violators increased their hostility and disobedience to God to the point that the whole world became enemies of God. Suppose God still determined to redeem these people and set aside a distinct nation for himself, giving them special gifts so that through them the entire world would be blessed. Suppose he kept delivering them from all their enemies, yet as soon as they were liberated, 
They rose up in rebellion to him. Suppose, because of his mercy and grace, God sent specially endowed messengers or prophets to plead with his people to return to him. Suppose the people killed these divine messengers and mocked their message. Suppose they then began to worship idols of stone and things they had made. Suppose they then invented religions which were totally opposed to the truth he had made clear to them. And they worshipped creatures rather than the Creator. Suppose in an ultimate act of redemption, God himself became incarnate in the person of his Son. Suppose this Son came into the world not to condemn the world, but to redeem it. Suppose this Son were rejected, slandered, mocked, tortured, and murdered, yet suppose that God accepted, God accepted the murder of his own son as punishment for the very sins of the very persons who murdered him. Suppose this God offered forgiveness and a cleansing from all guilt, victory over death, and eternal peace with himself. Suppose God gave these people as a free gift the promise of a future life that would be without pain, without sickness, without death, and without tears. Suppose that God said to these people, there is one thing that I demand. I demand that you honor my one and only Son and that you worship and serve him alone. Suppose God did all that. Would you be willing to say to him, God, that's not fair. You haven't done enough. If man has in fact committed cosmic treason against God, what reason could we possibly have that God should provide any way of redemption in light of the universal rebellion against God? The issue is not, why is there only one way? But, why is there any way at all? End of quote. The message of Hebrews is that Jesus is better. He's the ultimate. He's the best. He's better than anything man can achieve or even that which was true in Old Testament times. One of the many ways the author shows that Jesus is better is through the use of comparisons. And that's what we have in Hebrews chapter 9. It's the fifth a comparison so far in this amazing book. He's superior to angels, we found in chapter 1. He's superior to Moses in chapter 2. This Jesus is superior. The Levitical priesthood is inferior to the priesthood of Melchizedek. That's what's taken up in chapter 7. He has established that the Old Covenant is inferior to the better, the superior of the New Covenant. That's chapter 8. Then in chapter 9, we have the inferiority of the tabernacle of Moses in comparison with the heavenly tabernacle. That's what's in view. That's what this whole chapter is about. Verse 1 through the 28, all about this comparison. Verses 1 through 5 contains a description of part of the tabernacle of Moses. Now, this tabernacle didn't look like much to look at from the outside. Where do you look at, you look at it from the outside, you would not understand the glory and the beauty and the treasure that was contained on the inside. The most important aspect being the very presence of God. 
Look in chapter 9, verse 1 with me. Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. There were regulations. There were rules. God said, this is how you will approach me. That's just the way it is. Verse 2. For a tent was prepared, the first section. What's in view is what we call the holy place. This is the first compartment of two. And the author lists the items of furniture. And what I want to bring out here is that the focus is not on the items themselves. This is something of a listing without a lot of explanation. The explanation would not be needed for the Hebrew recipients who understood these things. But certainly the author of Hebrews wasn't in the frame of mind to give the items and furniture and then explain their use. Everyone would know it. And the focus is not on the items themselves, but what happened inside these two rooms. What happened in the holy place? What happened in the holy, the holy of holies itself? But he begins with these words at verse 2. For a tent was prepared, the first section, in which were the lampstand. That is the seven-branched candlestick. And the table and the bread of the presence. Here the table of showbread was food for the priest. We read these words. It is called the holy place. And then he moves on. Verse 3. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place. In Hebrew, Kodesh, Kodeshim. The most holy. The holy of holies. There's a holy place. And then there's the most holy place. And there what is described is described in verse 4. Having the golden altar of incense. Now, the incense from the altar is actually in the holy place, but it was taken into the second compartment. And everybody would have understood that. Uh, it was actually in the holy place, but you needed what happened in that holy place to then be taken into the most holy place, which is why it's listed this way. Both blood and incense were necessary to take into the Holy of Holies. Let me say that again. Both blood, the blood of the sacrifice, and the incense was necessary to take into the Holy of Holies. We continue to read. And the Ark of the Covenant, covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded. budded. You'll read in Numbers chapter 16 and 17 of the rebellion of Korah and God making it clear supernaturally that Aaron is the appointed leader, the one established by God, by making his staff bud. It was a supernatural thing, and for everyone, that was a testimony to God's appointment of Aaron over against anyone else who said, we can do all this. You're just wanting to hog the limelight for yourselves. Not so. This was God's appointment, and he proved it. You can read of that, as I say, in Numbers 16 and then 17. But again, we read Aaron's staff that budded. That was there in the ark. And the tablets of the covenant. This refers to what we know as the Ten Commandments. I don't believe it was a listing of five on one and then a five on another, but it was uh, two tablets, both containing the entire Ten Commandments. One for God, one for the people. Testimony to God, testimony to the people. Verse 5. Above it were the cherubim. These are uh, high, lofty angels. 
Cherub is one word, cherubim is the plural. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. This was the place of propitiation, a big word that means that God's anger is satisfied because of sacrifice. We speak in terms of propitiation as God is angry because of sin, rightfully so. It's his rightful response to that which is uh, an attack on his holiness. He is right to be angry at sin. But this uh, angry God is also the God of love, and in his love, he makes provision to dispense with his anger. What the gospel is all about is God saving us from an audience with him without being right with him. That is the ultimate salvation. It's wonderful if you're saved by means of someone shouting that a car's coming and you avoid the car. You're saved in a physical sense by avoiding the car. But the most important thing you and I to be, need to be saved from is the anger of God. And it was God's idea to send his son into the world so that he would bear the punishment of those who had angered him. The anger of God came upon the Son of God so that we might have him as our Redeemer standing in our place, taking the anger we deserve. And it was God's idea to do this, to deliver us from his just punishment. God so loved the world that he, that's the Father, gave his one and only Son. It was the Father's idea. It wasn't the Son's idea. I've got something. I'm more loving than the Father and I'm going to do something that's going to avert his wrath. No, it was the Father's plan all along to send the Son into the world to take on the punishment we deserved as sinners. And he became the Savior for us. What a message. The message of the Bible is not that of moral improvement. Many outside the walls of our churches think that's what is being told. Oh, you go to church, you're a goody two-shoes. You're trying to climb the mountain of God. No, the message of the Bible is not we're not climbing. God came down. God came down from the top of the mountain, found us in our rebellion on the valley floor. And while we were dead towards God, having no desire for him, he breathed life into his people and then takes us up the mountain so that we sit with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. It's an amazing message. It's a rescue plan. The Bible is a rescue plan. And we can get offended by that by saying, well, I'm pretty good. And God says, no, you're not. Not according to my uh, specifications of what goodness is. Goodness is what I say it is. And none of you are good. None of you do good. No, not one. Well, there's a few. No, there's not one. We are rebellious sinners in word, in thought, and in deed and in motive. And God has sent his son to die in the place of sinners, to save sinners, to actually save them. The Bible's a rescue plan. In the Old Testament, we have this amazing tabernacle, and it says above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat, which was the place of propitiation. Sacrifice was made, God's wrath against the nation was averted for another year. One day a year on the day of Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. Then we read these words. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. Don't you wish he could have written more? He's already said, you guys are dull of hearing. I can't give you all I want to. Well, he ended up giving us a lot more. I think uh, mercy prevailed and we do get all that he wished to convey. 
But he said at this point, or wrote at this point, of these things we cannot now speak in detail. I, I wish he could have written more, and in fact he did. As we read on, I want to encourage you as we read on from this verse, note the tenses. It's very important. These things he's writing about from verse 6 onwards were still continuing at the time of writing. Look with me in verse 6. These preparations, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly, that's present tense, into the first section, performing, not having performed long ago, but performing their ritual duties. Many believe that Hebrews was written before the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, and as things were going, the priests were still doing their thing. They were still performing the, the rites and the ceremonies related to what would have been instructed by God for the people of Israel in long days past. They were performing. They were going regularly, performing their ritual duties. Verse 7, but into the second only the high priest goes, present tense, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. I'll just point out here that this, amazingly, is the first mention of the word blood in the entire book of Hebrews. It's going to be a key theme from this point onwards. In fact, the word blood is going to be found 12 times in this chapter. But up till now, this is the first mention of it. Then we read verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates, and we're going to read on, but note that phrase, by this the Holy Spirit indicates. Now normally when you see this kind of expression, we've seen it already in chapter 3, the Holy Spirit says, what follows is a quotation from the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. The Holy Spirit said, the Holy Spirit said, and then there's this quote from the Old Testament. But that's not what happens here. Here we see these words, by this the Holy Spirit indicates. In other words, the Holy Spirit is stressing this. Get this. This is something important. The Holy Spirit indicates by this, by what I'm just saying, by what I've just written. Don't miss the point of what the Holy Spirit is making clear right now. What is the Holy Spirit indicating? That the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. In other words, the Holy Spirit is indicating in that system there's no open access. Access to God is denied. Permanent access to God. There were the millions of people that were Israel. Of them, only a few could be priests. Of them, only one could be high priest. And that one high priest, once a year, just for a few minutes, goes into the direct presence of God to make sacrifice for sin, for the people, and then gets out there as quickly as he can without dying. That's it. That's all you can hope for. As a Gentile, you had a non-Jewish person, you had no way in. And if you weren't of Levi, you had no way in. You couldn't be a priest. And once a year, if you were the chosen high priest, you could go in, but it was a risky business. There were bells on the high priest's garment which indicated as he moved, he was still alive. Okay, it's good. He, 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 I, I can hear the bell. Can you hear? It's been a few seconds. I'm a bit worried. Oh, there it is again. He's alive. And that was it. That's all you could hope for under the old covenant scheme. There was no direct access. Access denied. 
You ever tried to get into what you think is your right on the internet? This is my account, this is my account, this is my account. And then you get the message, access denied. And you think you've got to make some calls. I've got to now prove who I am and go through the course of maybe one or two days to try and get to the right person, a supervisor, to sort the problem out. You and I understand what it is to be denied access. The people of God and the people of the world were denied access to God, but something's changed and the Holy Spirit wants to indicate that. Permanent access to God was not yet the reality. Key theme of Hebrews is perfection, inheritance, rest, and that's not been achieved. That's all you could hope for under the Levitical system and the tabernacle of Moses. And all of that represented, get this, and not yet religion. Not yet. Something's coming, but it's not here yet. Not yet. Now, what an encouragement, again, this would be for the people who are Christians, believing in Jesus, a minority group within the towns and cities, being abandoned by the Jewish hierarchy and the authorities, banished from the synagogues for believing in Jesus. The temptation would be very strong. Go back. You are losing way too much. But Hebrews is written so that we would never go back. The people of God would never go back. There's nothing to go back to. Why would you go back to a not yet when the real thing is here? When the perfection has come? When the inheritance has come? When the rest has come? When Jesus has done what he has done and there's no more need of a sacrifice? Why go back to that which was only the promise of what has now come? That's the message. The Holy Spirit wants to indicate this. It's an illustration. Everything we're reading of the Old Covenant, the Old Tabernacle, is an illustration of what's yet to come. The Tabernacle, get this, pointed beyond itself. Pointed forward to perfection, to inheritance and rest, found only in Christ, who He is, and what He would eventually do. And now we can look back and say he has done. Look at verse 9, Hebrews 9 verse 9, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now, we've already talked about the physical barrier, the curtain that separated the holy place from the most holy place, the holy place from the holy of holies. There was this big, thick curtain that man could very, very, almost impossible to get through. It was, uh, some scholars say, about four inches thick. Very, very thick curtain. That was the first barrier. But there was a second one, an inward barrier, called the conscience. Keep your place in Hebrews and now see the contrast uh, in Colossians, back in our Bibles to Colossians, Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. Look in chapter 2. Paul emphasizing the fact, as he did elsewhere, about man dead in trespasses and sins before being regenerated, made alive spiritually. This was our case, all of our cases before God intervened. You were alive physically, but dead spiritually. Verse 13, Colossians 2.13. And you, writing to the Christians at Colossae, and you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, 
you were Gentiles without the covenant, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by cancelling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. Now, Jesus didn't go to the cross with nails. Jesus didn't go to the cross with a hammer. But if we could have seen in the spiritual realm, Jesus was hammering something to the cross and putting an end to it. The law with its obligations against us, cancelled out by the death of Christ because Jesus dies for lawbreakers. The law giver became the law keeper so that the law violators could be given righteousness, the righteousness of the law keeper. We stand in the righteousness of one who's kept the law for us. And he's put all the other things aside. All the things that say, they can't come, they can't come, they can't be forgiven. Look what they did, look what they did. Jesus can say, look what I did. I nailed all of that to the cross. Go look in the spiritual realm. You'll see it, you'll see it, you'll see it. He set it all aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame. How ironic this is. It looked like Jesus was put to public shame. If that's all you could see physically, that would be true. It looked like Jesus was dying as a criminal because that's what the assessment of Rome and the Jews were. This is a criminal, he's worthy of death. Put him on the cross. Open shame, public spectacle. But if we could have, with spiritual eyes, seen what was taking place, Jesus was making a public spectacle of the devil. Jesus was making a public spectacle of sin. Sin will never be the issue for anyone who trusts in Christ ever again. It shall never be an issue. Your sins I will remember no more. Why? Because Jesus nailed them to the cross. Triumphing over then in him. What? That's why we call that Dark Friday when Jesus died Good Friday. Because the most good has come from it. Jesus died our death that we could share his life. He bore our curse that we could have his blessing. He forgave our sins and has given us righteousness as a gift. And by that, he won over the devil. It looked like Jesus was enduring torture for his sake. Isaiah 53 puts it like this. We esteemed him stricken by God and afflicted. We thought God was punishing him. Well, in one sense he was, but not for his sin, for he had none. For he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The punishment due to us was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's the heart of the gospel. And what the old covenant tabernacle could never do was cleanse the conscience. We knew the priest was going in there, but we couldn't see it. We, we, we knew, as the people of Israel, he was doing something, he was making sacrifice, and he came, comes out alive, but we had no real assurance, except that he did come out alive. 
Now through the work of the cross, we have full assurance and our conscience can be at peace. The devil brings up our sins. Didn't you do this on March the 28th? And didn't you do that on February the 4th? And didn't you do this? And didn't you do that? And going back to 1972, you remember you did this? And 2018, you remember you did this? And you did that? And you did this? Luther would respond in a paraphrase like this. So what, devil? That just shows me I'm a sinner and Christ died for sinners. That's the message. He reminds us of our sin, but we also have our own conscience. And sometimes we, we actually don't need the devil. We get our own whip. And we whip our own back and say, you wishy-washy, no-good Christian. You said you're a Christian, look at you. You just did this. You just said that. You just thought this. Throw the whip down. Realize you stand in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And our conscience can be cleared because Jesus has dealt with the sin. And he will never bring it up. God the Father will never bring up the sins of any believer ever again. It's been nailed to the cross, ladies and gentlemen, never to be remembered no more. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us. Verse 10 of Hebrews 9, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. This was an old order. Something new had to come. A reformation, a new order needs to come. As I've been reading through Hebrews and just being delighted in my study as I see truth after truth, I then read my Bible and read it in the light of Hebrews, turn with me to John chapter 1. I'm asking the Lord to help me to teach this, but also teach it without crying. <laughs> what a Savior. I think I told you about the man in England who was Thought he was called to the ministry, but every time he preached, he just broke down and cried. And after the 13th time, they never asked him again. He just never got over the fact that this is too overwhelming for him. I'm at that point right now, so pray for me. We read these words, echoing Genesis 1 verse 1. is John chapter 1 verse 1. In the beginning was the word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was face to face with God. He was pros, face to face, in an intimate relationship with God. So he's not God in one sense, he was with him, and yet he is God in another sense. The Word was God. So there's two persons here called God. It's later going to be established that the Holy Spirit is also God. There's one God, three persons, two of whom are mentioned here. And it stresses it again, verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. He was with God as far back as you can go. He was already there and he was God. He's the creator. All things were made through him and without him was not anything that was made. In him was life and the life was the light of men. 
It's a whole Bible study in itself. But every element of the tabernacle, every piece of furniture is a prophetic picture of what Jesus is, who Jesus is and what he would do. Jesus is the light of the world. He's the menorah. He's the seventh branched candlestick. And we only have light because of him. In him was life and the life was the light of men. That candlestick was the only form of light in that room. Everything else was dark, 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 dark. So Jesus is the only light of the world. If they've got any kind of light, it's because of Jesus. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Hallelujah. Then we read about John and his ministry and then we read these words in verse 14. And the Word, this eternal Word who is God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. You might have a marginal note in your Bible at verse 14 with the word dwelt because it's an unusual word in Greek. It actually means tabernacled. Some even have a Bible translation that reads like this, and the Word became flesh and pitched his tent among us. He tabernacled. That is not coincidence. John, a Jew, is making it clear that everything of the tabernacle pointed to someone, not just something. The Lord Jesus, the word became flesh and became the very tabernacle of God amongst us. And we have seen his glory Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. He tabernacled amongst us. He pitched his tent amongst us. He's the light of the world. Go to John chapter 6. Think of the tabernacle. Think of the most holy place. Verse 35, just a clear statement of Jesus. Jesus said to them, John 6, 35, I am the bread of life. He's the light. He's the bread. He's the offering. He's the high priest. He's the king. He's the prophet. He's the high priest who doesn't bring blood of something or someone else, but he brings his own blood into the heavenly court. And rather than bringing merely a temporal covering for sin that would last a year, Jesus, in offering himself as the perfect high priest, as the perfect sacrifice, placated the wrath of God as his blood was poured out on heaven's mercy seat. And the Holy Spirit is indicating this. Get this, people of God. That's what he's saying. Get this. The Holy Spirit wants to make sure you know this. What was once true is no longer true. What are we talking about? That access is denied. That's no longer true. The way is open. 
Verse 8 again, that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. It says closed. It says no access. Verse 9, the Old Testament sacrifice cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Now the contrast. Look in verse, uh, back to Hebrews chapter 9. Are you ready for the contrast? There was one barrier that was physical, the curtain. And the second barrier of the conscience. Never feel free and never feel like I'm sh- I can be sure of anything. Are you ready? Verse 11. But, oh. There are so, there's so much in that word, but. It's like the Ephesians 2 verse 4 verse. But, God. But, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, oh, heavenly reality, heavenly tent, the earthly was just a copy of the real thing, not made with hands, that is not of this creation. God told Israel, build the tabernacle this way because it's a replica of the one in heaven. Because one day the Lord Jesus Christ would be the high priest and bring the sacrifice, make the atonement for sin that was once and for all. And when he had done what he had done, there was no more sacrifice needed. He could sit down at the Father's right hand, having accomplished eternal redemption. That's where Hebrews is taking us. Not of this creation. So which came first, the chicken or the, or the egg? Which came first, the earthly tabernacle or the heavenly? The heavenly. The heavenly came first. We don't read about it till Hebrews, right? We just saw the copy. So Hebrew Christians, don't go back to the copy when the real thing has already happened. There's nothing to go back to. Everything of that pointed to this, and you're in this, and the Holy Spirit's indicating that. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, all the tenses have changed. Past tense. He's done it, folks. He's done it. Then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once, not once a year, once for all time. He answered once for all into the holy places, the most holy place, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify what, what, what? Our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. It's not Jesus, plus I have to do a whole bunch of things. It's Jesus, plus nothing. Jesus saves by himself, alone, plus nothing. Solus Christus, Christ alone saves. A couple of scriptures and we'll close. John 14. Verse 1, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you 
that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that there, where, where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I'm going. Well, they didn't. Note when this was happening. John 14. Where's that in the life of Jesus? It's just before the cross. It's within hours of the cross where he'd go as the high priest and bring the sacrifice. You know where I'm going. Thomas said to him, I appreciate Thomas so much. He spoke for everybody here. Uh, hmm. uh, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? I'm so glad he asked. Jesus said to him, Thomas, hey, Tommy boy, I'm the way. Not, I'm going to show you the way. Or, I know the way. He said, I am the way. And the truth. And the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Why is there any way at all? If you'd have known me, you'd have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father and it, it's enough for us. Jesus said, have I been so long with you and you still don't know me, Philip? Whoever's seen me has seen the Father. Matthew 25. This is now the testimony to the priests on the day that Jesus died. God could have written the message in clouds. He did much more than that. Matthew 25. Actually, 27, they moved it overnight. <laughs> you ever found that? I'm sure it was in 25. No, no. I was having a moment there like, uh, Lord, uh, it was there last night. No, it wasn't. It was 27. Matthew 27, verse 45. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. Father and the Son doing business. For no one else's eyes. About the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's quoting the first part of the book of Psalm, Psalm 22. Everyone would know he's fulfilling the entire psalm. It's like saying amazing grace. We don't have to say every verse. And Jesus didn't have much in the way of breath. But by quoting the start of Psalm 22, he's saying, I'm fulfilling this. Some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man's calling for Elijah. One of them at once ran and took a sponge filled with sour wine and put a reed on it, a reed, and gave it him to drink. The others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, oh, the Holy Spirit is testifying right now. He's signifying right now. Can you hear it? Can you hear what he's saying, what he's emphasizing? 
And behold, behold, look, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen to sleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. This was amazing. Priests, it's the Day of Atonement. It's the big day. They're doing their thing. And God and his son had done business. And there was a moment when God said, that's it. You've suffered in their place. You've died the death that my people deserved. And right now, I am declaring defunct everything that's happening yards away in their tabernacle, in their temple. They're going through the motions. They're saying, okay, pass this, do this, let's do this, let's follow the rites. And God says, that's enough. The, te- the, te- the holy barrier that God himself erected to separate God from man. God now tears from top to bottom. What a testimony to the priests. Everything you're doing now is defunct, obsolete. I've accepted my son yards away. His sacrifice on the cross as the penalty for sin. And what you do from this moment on is over. It's obsolete. Did the priest give up? No. They sewed, sewed the curtain back and carried on. Ladies and gentlemen, Curtains being torn by God. Erected by God as his instructions. Now eradicated. Whether you're a Jew or a Gentile, a man or a woman, or a boy or a girl. And by the way, there are only those categories. Amen. You can come boldly to the throne of grace any time you like because you now have permanent access through the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for Jesus. What a Savior. Write the truth of him and who he is on our hearts that we forever would praise you now and for eternity knowing there's nothing to go back to. Jesus has paid it all. Amen.